This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today in the studio are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, the TSO marketing director, Vanessa Gardner, and on the phone, we have principal second violin and artistic administrator, Merwin Sue, and the TSO's music director, Elaine Trudell. Welcome, everybody, and we have a great big subject ahead of us today, and that is this upcoming Shakespeare concert. It's called Musical Tales from the Bard, uh, happening Friday and Saturday night. Now, it's streaming live on Saturday night at 8 p.m., is that right? Yep. Yeah, so and folks can find that at, at stream.artstoledo.com. But you have an audience we coming do, in. We do, we do. I'm so excited to, to be able to say tickets available uh, yeah. for these programs now. So certainly uh, box office 419-246-8000 and the website toledosymphony.com. Well, April is sort of Shakespeare month, you know. It's uh, the month of his birth, supposedly, and the month of his death, uh, people tend to put that on the same date, so it you know comes to a nice point. But uh, Shakespeare influenced so many different composers, so many different people throughout history, and this concert touches on some of that, but in a very unusual fashion because you don't have you you have a few of the usual suspects here. You've got Mendelssohn, Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, but you don't really have some of the other extremely well-known, almost cliche Shakespearean pieces. Rather, you went for composers that I didn't know that they wrote a Shakespeare piece. Maybe you didn't know either. People like uh, Kurt Otterberg and Peter Warlock and, and David Diamond, a contemporary composer. So let's begin by talking about the repertoire in the concert, what the music is, and how it relates to Shakespeare. Um, Elaine, you want to talk, or Merwin, you want to take the lead here? Which one of you wants to go first? Let, let me set the scene for you and get a little music. Okay, go for it. Okay, should I go? Sure, do it. Okay, well, we were looking for, as you said, a new way to look at the work of Shakespeare through music. And not using, you know, Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, the the usual suspects. So we went into uh, different ways. For example, there are a few personifications. We wanted to find something that was Romeo and Juliet, not Prokofiev, not Tchaikovsky. Something that was American. Something that was closer to us, even though it's in a real tonal language or modal language, if you want. And it's very exciting and uh, with the David Diamond. Uh, but th- just before we, we, we started that, it was either talking about around the world or around the time. Now, one of the most interesting pieces, uh, piece on our program is the piece by, um, his composer name is Peter Warlock. And everybody <laughs> said, oh, Warlock, it's kind of catchy. It's easy to remember. It's like an artist's name, right? Yeah. Anyway, and he was c- kind of a guy who has a little bit of a scandalous life, but he wrote some really, really good music. What was and his real what name? I found in, uh, a big Philip Hesseltine? Yeah, yeah we Phil could Hesseltine. actually do an entire episode on Peter Warlock, man. The guy was Absolutely. crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, totally we know what we're doing next week. <laughs> All right. We'll write that down. You can actually do, you can actually do a quiz on it. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't give him any I'll ideas. I'll give you an example. I, I thought it would be great to have some music by John Dowland. 
mm-hmm. you know, or or a contemporary, more contemporary, 20th century, let's say, not contemporary, view on the music of John Dowland. Because he was at the same time as Shakespeare, but Shakespeare didn't really appreciate his music too much because Shakespeare thought that John Dowland had too much expression in his music. And he, he was not, it, it was all about wearing his, uh, his emotion on his sleeves. And so, yes, some Shakespeare, but some contemporary from Shakespeare, the emotion from that, the mix of the two. So it's interesting because when I go to a concert, personally, I like to be surprised. I like to, to hear something I know. Like Coriolan's amazing overture by Beethoven. We're, we only put the, the Midsummer Night's Dream, we only put the Nocturne because also it gives a chance to our brass player to have a bit of a future, uh, a feature, uh, our horn players especially. Yeah. And, but the rest of the program is something that's really, we discover things. So it's a, a real Toledo Symphony mix program where, uh, as Zach likes to say, you come in for maybe the Beethoven and the Mendelssohn, and you go out talking maybe about the diamond and the warlock. I, I want to take a pause for a second and talk about a couple of things here. You mentioned John Dowland. Some people say John Doland because it rhymes with Semper Dolans, you know, Do, Do, oh, Dolan, yeah, yeah, Semper yeah, Dolans. Um, I think that Shakespeare didn't like him because he, he just wrote sad music all the time, right? Like, yeah. here's a little of it in the background. That piece, Flow My Tears, which evidently was yeah. a huge hit back in the day. <laughs> Top 40. Yeah. I mean, Casey Kasem. Casey, I was just going to say that. Well, yeah, it was one of the most played pieces, you know, Flow My Tears. Didn't, and he made all these different versions of it and published it, and the music was just all over. Didn't Sting do yeah. a John Dolland uh, Yeah, he did album. Flow My yeah. Tears. That's what I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, that's my theory anyway, that it was just a little bit too... You say emotional, I say a bummer, right? But also talking about the the Midsummer Night's Nocturne, which has this great horn part, right? Mm, Playing a little of it here in the background. Nice. It's so difficult. Well, Vanessa, I wondered if you had any experience with this. So I first learned the Nocturne as an excerpt, you know, before actually having any context for the piece. And then... um, performed it as a ballet. And the thing I love about this excerpt now is that a lot of choreographers actually use this part to demonstrate humor. And so in the in the um, Ashton or the Balanchine ballet of Midsummer Night's Dream, what's happening here is Puck has turned bottom into a donkey <laughs> and um, Tatiana wakes up and falls in love with the don- the donkey. And so knowing that it's really kind of a hilarious moment in the ballet makes it so much easier to play because mm. it it's just not so serious anymore. But when you learn it just on its own, it's just so incredibly difficult. It requires a huge amount of control and chops. Yeah. The breathing <laughs> yeah. control too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so beautiful. Oh, gosh. Well, I have to say one of my favorite uh, takes on Shakespeare is in Benjamin Britten's opera, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and that great scene where he has Pyramus and Thisbe, you know, they do the little play, the rustics do the play. And in Shakespeare, it kind of makes fun of theatrical conventions. It's a satire. Um, in the opera, he uses it to make fun of, you know, bel canto operatic conventions. There's, there's a great correlation between the two. When they do that, I'm, I'm wondering if you all have like sort of favorite Shakespearean moments in pieces of music that aren't necessarily 
on this concert. Merwin, you have anything that comes to mind that maybe you would have put on this concert if you had the opportunity? Well, uh, it, it would actually be a chamber piece, and it's something I actually heard on WGTE. So I'm ah, actually very well, grateful. Extra for points for that. Exactly. Um, I, pro- I probably wouldn't have come across it. It's a piece by Paul Moravec, and it's a Tempest Fantasy. All right. And yeah. it's a piece for clarinet, uh, violin, cello, and piano. Mm. And there's a movement called Sweet Airs. And it's, I, I was listening to this um, on WGD and thinking, you know, there are very few pieces of music that I can absolutely guarantee will be in the repertoire a hundred years from now. Yeah. And this is, this was one of them. And I've loved the piece ever since had the chance to perform it a couple of times. And, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful piece to, to put together and to, to perform. It goes over wonderfully with the audience as well. So yeah. that's definitely. So Sweet Airs, that's based on that wonderful speech by the character of Caliban, right? Sort of the, the monster on the uh, the island. There's a wonderful Caliban movement as well, where yeah. uh, it's like a 5-4 waltz featuring the bass clarinet, and it kind of has that sort of lumbering quality of trying <laughs> to fit in. It's really great. Uh, it's a really great movement as well. Yeah. Does anybody else have any favorite Shakespeare excerpts they want to... Offer up. I'll also bring up the Tempest, uh, but in in Sibelius's hands. Um, you know, this is um, you know, kind of a late later Sibelius and his compositions. At least came after the Seventh Symphony, um, and it it you know he wrote these tone poems that just are fantastic. But um, it's not what I expected about the the Tempest necessarily. Um, and uh, it just it, it it goes in amazing places, and it plays with the the sound world in a, amazing ways. So I feel like you can almost imagine a romantic uh, painting uh, to go along with the the Sibelius. Yeah, yeah, wonderful tone poems that, that have been done on the Tempest and other. You know, I I mean, Elaine mentions Romeo and Juliet of Tchaikovsky. That that's great. There's also the Nina Rota Romeo and Juliet. Oh, the score. Um, yeah. Score. There, there's film scores. There's ballet scores. There's a lot of incidental music. So much music inspired and, and tone poems as well. Elaine, we haven't heard from you as far as a, a favorite uh, Shakespearean piece of music goes. You know, the, I I have a bit of a a disappointment because uh, my favorite, uh, one of my favorites, or maybe my favorite, is Othello. There's not so much, I mean, there's Verdi, of course, Othello, which is amazing, but I'm not too hot on the Dvorak. Cacciatorian is, is not too bad for me, but uh, I would like to see something about Othello that would be like, you know, that would like, that would totally rock. That would be amazing. But <laughs> I do have one that I really, really like is Falstaff. Is that mm. the Mary, uh, how do you say? Uh, the Mary Wise of Windsor. Yeah. yeah. The Falstaff is a work of genius. It's, it's not one actor in particular is the whole mm. thing. It's, uh, it's the experience that you have and the, the perspective that he takes on that. I mean, you know, we can talk about the, you know, Prokofiev, I'm injured and all that, but there's a certain thing about Verdi, the maturity in Falstaff and the angle that he takes it's very interesting. I, I like that. And the music is ridiculous. Yeah. You're talking about the Verdi opera, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I love how it ends with that 
that great big ensemble, everything in the world is a joke, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I read Othello pretty young in life, and my very first screen name back in the days of AOL was <laughs> Iago13. That was you? But you know, Verdi's Othello is the most amazing thing. I mean, I just would like to have a symphonic work that has the equivalent, you know, like when you have uh, Romeo and Juliet, there's so many of them, Prokofiev, Tchaikovsky, and, but uh, Bernstein was like, sorry. But yeah. uh, in Othello, for some reason, I don't know, it hasn't been uh, used all that much, just instruments symphonic wise. Yeah. So what you're saying is that uh, it, it leaves you wanting more. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, the, the opera is so amazing. And the role of Iago is ridiculous, you know? It's, uh, it's so good. I, I love, Alain, that you mentioned West Side Story and Bernstein because, you know, you, you conducted, I think it was like a week or so into your first full season here, you conducted the West Side Story um, film yeah, version. Yeah, I, I just picked easy stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, I, I thought since Vanessa uh, hasn't heard this before, it might be kind of fun to resurrect the past. I mean, last week we resurrected the Resurrection Symphony of Mahler, so sort of keeping it in that spirit, we can resurrect the little skit that we had Bob Clemens do for West Side Story. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Where, where yes, we took the, the story of West Side Story, and then we kind of sent it back through the Shakespeare grinder. We re-Shakespeareized <laughs> it and had him do it that way. And, and we also recorded some sound effects and what have you. So, Vanessa, I'm excited for you to hear this. I don't okay. think you've heard this before. I'm so myself. We'll bring it up. This is uh, the, the Symphony Lab players performing their the version Symphony of Lab. West Side Story. You're on FM 91. Few households, both alike in dignity, in fair New York, where we lay our seed. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. <laughs> At which hour thou art a jet, thou art a jet all the way, from thy first cigarette to thy last dying day. <laughs> Maria, Maria, I've just hath met a wench named Maria, and suddenly your name shall never be the same to me. <laughs> tonight, 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 all beganeth tonight. I did see thee, and the ordinary wenteth away. The jets aren't gonna hast their day tonight. The sharks are gonna hast their way tonight. Thou poisonous bunchback's toad. Thinkest thou art a general offense? Thou art a boil. A plague sign <laughs> face is not worth sunburning. Thou lump of foul deformity. <laughs> they have killed mine own brother. Thy brother hath killed mine own best friend. Let's runneth away together. Yes, let's. <laughs> Thither's a lodging for us. Somehow. Someday. Someday. Bang. Bang. 
Maria. <coughs> oh, bloody hell. <laughs> oh. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. For never was a story of more woe than this of Maria and her Tony O. <laughs> I, I love how the sound effect, yay, <laughs> made it in there. Yeah. That's where it came from. Well, you can tell we've had it for years now. Oh, some wow. of these sound effects have been around for, for quite some time. It was one of, I think, the original Symphony Lab shows, wasn't it? Yeah, that was that incredible. Was, that was at the beginning of our second oh. season. We I should think. do that more often. Yeah, well, you know, we are committed to doing uh, good radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was, was outstanding. And that was fun. Wow. I haven't listened to that in years, so that's that's outstanding. Those I, were the I forgot days. That, that there's a lodging. <laughs> <laughs> well, all thanks to the talents of Robert Clemens, who is a cellist in the in the orchestra, but also you bring him uh, in front of the microphone on stage, not only as a, a soloist, but as a, a thespian. You know, he's great with the, the acting thing. So. That's amazing. Thanks to him for helping to put that together. I figured it was time to bring that back because, sure. you know, we have a whole cornucopia of uh, golden nuggets out there in, in various episodes Summer of Toledo Symphony Lab. Yeah. <laughs> you already write the golden nuggets? <laughs> the golden nuggets, yeah. I'm pretty sure that Shost, was Chris Marlowe. And, <laughs> and they're all available online, you know. If folks want to go spelunking and, and find something, they can go uh, mining for oral gold at uh, wgte.org. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I lost you, Zach. Here, let's see if we can bring you back. Yay. There we go. Okay, A U R A L, oral gold. Mm. I just made that up. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm sure it's never been used before. Mm -hmm. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's get back on the rails. Listener. No, let's get back on the rails here. <laughs> Come on back and listen. It's okay. <clears throat> so I have a quiz. I have oh, a Shakespeare really? quiz. I really I... hope that by playing that we were safe from a quiz this week. No, no. <clears throat> No, that was just the preamble to our quiz. Okay. All right. So, as you may know, and let me pull up a little music here. Let me pull Actually, out my cheat sheet. Th this quiz is called "Brush Up Your Shakespeare," and the closest music I could get to it was this. <laughs> this kind of sounds like Cole Porter. <laughs> this sounds this exactly is... what I hear in the uh, office like should, after four o'clock. We should all be at the bar. Not the, <laughs> yeah, right. the, the B-A-R-R-E. Oh, I thought you meant the bard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Everybody at the bard. Okay. You're not going to detract me from my quiz here. <laughs> We're still doing it. All right? I used to sing a song to this theme to my daughters. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Are you going to sing it for us now? Depends how many drinks we have at the bard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, here we go. Now, we know that Shakespeare coined a number of words, in fact, hundreds of words that are used by the English language. I mean, he would conjoin words together, he'd change verbs into adjectives, change nouns into verbs, etc., etc. He didn't always come up with just brand new words. But this quiz is about picking the word that Shakespeare created. He was the first one to use in print, okay? So I'm going to give you three words, you tell me which one belongs to Shakespeare. 
Revulsion, addiction, or erudition? Which of those three was coined by Shakespeare? I'll go C. B. Um, well, it's a buzzer for Merwin. And... Yay! <laughs> for Elaine, yeah. Addiction. Addiction. That's in Henry V. Talking about Prince Hal. He was previously... He had a previous addiction to Corse's vein. In other words, before he mm. became king, he liked to party a lot. Speaking of going to the bar, mm-hmm. right? Okay, next one. Sausage, anchovy, or pepperoni? Pepperoni. A, B, or C? Pepperoni is wrong. Sausage. Sausage is wrong. <laughs> anchovy. Anchovy. In Henry the Fourth, uh, Falstaff's pockets are emptied, and one of the things that's in his pocket is an anchovy. So he, in, how do you invent? Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's oh, it's fish. I, yes. I, I don't I don't get what it. What was an anchovy called before Shakespeare called it an anchovy? I don't know. A little fish, maybe fishlet, something fishlet. like that. Fishlet. That's fishlet. probably yeah. true. It's a Finnish word. Anchovy. Well, if you liked anchovy, you'll love the next uh, quiz. Here she we go. She is my favorite aunt. All right. Married to Uncle Chovy. Did he invent the word alligator, reptile, or crocodile? Crocodile. No, he, he used crocodile tears in yeah. his writing all the time, the idea of crocodile tears, but that existed already. Alligator. Yeah. Alligator. Whoops. Alligatore. There we go. That's better. Alligatore. Uh, alligator. That's from Romeo and Juliet. It, Shame I on mean, us. okay, I have an answer for you, though, Zach, because... I didn't ask a question, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like that's your job right now. Because at this time, at this time, people, instead of calling it an alligator, they called it uh, alligato. Alligarto, or they would just call it a lagarto, which was like Spanish for lizard, something like that. Mm. So he came up with alligator and spelled it the modern way. Largos for lizards? Yeah, something like that. Got it. I like the way Elaine said it, though. We'll stay with that. Okay. Um, This is a a word that also appeared in Romeo and Juliet. Is it bump, lump, or blister? (laughs) Blister. Mm. Go with bump. Yeah, you got one. I keep hitting that wrong I one. Get, I get both apathetic and wild applause. Yes. Uh, that's about right for today. It was bump. Uh, Juliet got a bump on her head when she was a kid. Her nurse talks about it. No? Okay, did he invent the word bedroom, kitchen, or dungeon? Ooh. Bedroom. Bedroom. Yes, Yay. bedroom. Oh, I keep hitting that wrong one. Let me... I got the sad one. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I barely came up with that. That's in Midsummer Night's Dream. The bedroom. Okay. Obscene, forbidden, or taboo? Is this also from a Midsummer Night's Dream? This is from Love's Labor's Love's Labor Lost. Something Easy for like you that. to say. Love's Labor's Lost. The only Shakespeare play to have two apostrophes in it. You can you can say Shostakovich and, and Stravinsky without even thinking, but saying love's labor's lost, it trips you up. That's because I misspelled it on my paper. <laughs> it's, okay. the, it's the extra U. It's the Canadian U that's bugging you. Labor. Yes. Obscene, forbidden, or taboo? Forbidden. I'm going to go with taboo. Yeah, taboo. Oh, no. I'm going to go with obscene. 
Obscene, yeah. He loves like that. Lost. Taboo was actually in the writings of James Cook, the great explorer, when he was... It's like Polynesian or something. Not quite sure. Okay. Um, did he come up with witch doctor, fortune teller, or miracle worker? Witch doctor, fortune teller, or miracle worker? Oh, uh, say witch doctor. Fortune teller. Oh, Elaine is right. Yay. Yeah, fortune teller from the comedy of errors. Right. Okay, puppy dog, kitty cat, or church mouse? Church mouse. Never heard Merwin get this many strikes. Kitty cat. <laughs> Puppy dog. Yay. It's a new thing from now on. I'm doing both the sad and the happy cheer. It's like harmony. Yeah. Vanessa got one. Oh, I, okay. Well, oh, Vanessa's here? Hang on. I got one more. I got one more for you. Watchdog, guardian, or protector? I'm going to go on the dog theme and say watchdog. Um... Let me see. Oh, yeah. Yay! That's right. That comes from The Tempest. Ariel actually yeah. sings a song where she's like, bark, bark, the watchdog. Hark, hark, bark, bark. Right? You know, like my Shakespeare? It, 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 I, I think you really missed your calling. Hark, hark. <laughs> bark, bark. I mean, I... I brought, yeah. Tis me. El lagarto, when I said that, it's because it comes from that word. Oh yeah, it means the, the like the big lizard or something like that that he changed to English. Yeah, totally. Oh, I just you're showing off, Alligarto. <laughs> oh. I am actually really yeah. surprised that Brad did not pull in all or none of the above. In this. I know I was oh, tempted. I, the, the, there are still more on his sheet. He's just avoiding them. I have an entire second page of quiz <laughs> questions here, but <laughs> I, you know, we're going to have to push a bunch of this over to the podcast. Obviously, all of it. But I'm, <laughs> I want to, I want to talk Yay. about. I think there's an interesting thing, a, a, a interesting angle that we can talk about a little bit. You know, Shakespeare was active and working during the time of the bubonic plague mm -hmm. in London, and when you think about the first ten years or so of the, of the 17th century, Shakespeare was writing his greatest plays, like King Lear, uh, Macbeth, and other plays that you know, that that we think of as iconic Shakespearean plays. But theaters were closed down for more than half of the time during those first 10 years because of the plague. Mm -hmm. And some people think Shakespeare went off and wrote poetry and, and his sonnets and, and what have you because they couldn't perform. But it also gave him time to work on his plays as well. But, um, it, you know, there's something to be said there for the fact that Shakespeare was working under quarantine, mm -hmm. you know, and here we are in the 21st century. I mean, it's not nearly as bad as the bubonic plague was, but still we're operating under conditions that are reflective somewhat of what Shakespeare was working on. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? I start to wonder what is going to come from this. So you already start to see some novels that were started at the beginning of the pandemic that are starting to see the light of day and how um, artists have adapted their um, their art forms to align with the, the pandemic. There's a, a new composition that uh, Simona Dinnerstein just premiered. It's a, a bunch of variations, all of which are dedicated to a different um, group of people who were affected by the pandemic. So I want to know what the sonnets of this time are going to be 
And I don't know that we'll know the answer to that yeah. for another couple of years as the creative processes kind of tease out and those projects, you know, finish up. But, uh, you know, this has certainly been a, a challenging time where we've all had to experiment and improvise. And I think the art form is is fantastically wedded to that. And, and I think that composers have been writing. I know Alain's been writing music. And uh, we have yet to hear the cultural fruits of, of this time of, of captivity. Yeah, yeah. I, I've spoken with a lot of composers during the pandemic, and a lot of them have said, you know, what am I? What what can I do but sit home and write? Right. I mean, a few people have said they're they're a little too distressed. Sure. But I mean, a year into it, most of them have have decided to move forward with with what it is that they do. You talk about the Simone Dinerstein and the Richard Daniel Poor right. uh, piece that he wrote for her. Um, I spoke with uh, composer Sam Adler not not too long ago, and he's been writing up a storm at age ninety three. That's right. For his friends mm -hmm. to play, like on YouTube or whatever their you know their video channels are. So there are a lot of people who have been taking inspiration in one way or the other mm -hmm. um, from the fact that they have had to to quarantine from it, each other from the world. This is a horrible time to yeah. have writer's block. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But it is actually really interesting. You, Zach, you mentioned what are the sonnets of our time, and I actually think one of the things that's really happened in the last few months is a resurgence of interest in poetry. And I think a lot of that came really from Amanda Gorman's appearance at the inauguration, but I think people have been delving into poetry, and it's become part of the public consciousness in a way that I don't think it had been just a couple years earlier. So I think that could be one of those side effects of the last you know, last couple of months. Well, yeah, and also just reading books. I mean, I've never read more books in my life right. than, than over the past year. So the fascinating question, of course, and we're getting a little philosophical here. So the fascinating question is going to be how we emerge from this. So if you go back even just 100 years to the end of 1918, 1919 pandemic, we had the Roaring Twenties where everybody wanted to get out and party and, you know, kick their heels up. And then, you know, I'd really hate to think what's going to happen nine years from now if it's another <laughs> depression. But um you know, the history does have a way of repeating itself. Yeah. And I wonder what we'll pick up from, you know, plague days, uh, post-plague days, post-pandemic uh, days. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we are seeing the light on the edge of the horizon. And I think we can all look forward to more times together that will feel more familiar. Yeah. Well, let's finish up with a, a couple of extra little Shakespearean quiz-type questions here. Is this the post-quiz? This is the post-quiz quiz. I'm resurrecting the quiz, okay, right? Okay, so are, are points wiped clean, or is Merwin still leading? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who won the last quiz. Well, I think I was a negative number. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem to matter. It's the absolute value of your points, I think. So now this is your chance. This is your chance yes. to catch up, all of you, Okay. So now we know the most famous stage direction in all of Shakespeare, right? Do you know what it is? Exit. Exit pursued, pursued by, by a bear, mm -hmm. right? Oh, you probably know this. Tell me what happens right before <laughs> that stage direction. Is it a weaver has his head turned into a donkey? Is it uh, two would-be assassins plot against their prince? Or is it a nobleman abandons a baby in the woods? C. Yes, indeed. Yay! Yay! That's from The Winter's Tale. It's like the, the one thing that people remember about that play, I guess. <laughs> he Is gets the bear pursued named by a bear. Yes. <laughs> it's all about a bear. Yes. Bear. It was unbearable. Bear in his tail. <laughs> unbearable. Okay. The original title of this play was preceded by 
this phrase, the most excellent and lamentable tragedy of, was it Othello, was it Titus Andronicus, or was it Romeo and Juliet? Is it Romeo? Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I think we'll have to cut this part out because Zach is definitely going to win at this point. (laughs) Wait, I didn't say that right. My high school English teachers are laughing right now because they know how horribly I did on Shakespeare. What I meant is put this in the uh, uh, on-air version, right? Okay. Why did Shakespeare will his to his wife his second best bed? Is it because it was her favorite, because it was a family joke, or because nobody knows? B. I thought his daughter got the first best bed. <laughs> I don't think so. I think, I think. Clearly nobody knows. Uh, nobody knows. Including us. <laughs> nobody really knows why. He said she could have his second best bed. It says a bed. lot about your days when you have to bequeath your beds by better, best, good. Mm, yes. <laughs> Which speech does the Guinness Book of World Records use to judge the world's fastest speaker? Is it Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be? Is it the opening words of Richard III, now is the winter of our discontents made blah, blah, blah? Or is it uh, the famous line from Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears? Which of those three? I'll go see. Me. Well, you both get others. <laughs> <laughs> it's hey. actually Hamlet, yeah. Interesting. Oh. To be or not to be, that entire speech is used to judge the world's fastest speaker. Hmm. And finally, what is the most frequent cause of death in Shakespeare's plays? Is it murder, is it suicide, or is it illness? Ooh. Suicide. Yeah. Yay. I think that one just gets the sad yay. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> suicide, definitely. yay! It definitely deserves the sad yay. Yeah. yeah. It, it, 13 different plays. 13 out of, what, what 30-something yeah. plays. I mean... Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays. Do you remember a couple of years ago when they did uh, identify Christopher Marlowe as a, a kind of a co-writer to... I, I knew you would get Mahler into this somehow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to As a co-writer of uh, three or four Shakespearean plays. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a whole... Well, there's a whole conspiracy, but they actually... the, uh, uh, the, the Oxford finally identified that Marlowe was a co-writer on, on three of these. Oh, which Maybe three? Four. Henry VI. And nobody reads that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. But uh, it was it's... Uh, I, I, that, that's the part of Shakespeare that I'm more fascinated by, is you know, which, which is actually him. Yeah, hmm. the, the mystery... I have a book recommendation. Okay. So speaking <laughs> uh, of speaking of books under quarantine, um, there's uh, an author called Chris, Christopher Moore, who writes um, fantastical comedies, and his latest book is called Shakespeare for Squirrels, and it's very <laughs> much Midsummer Night's Dream. Lots of woodland creatures mm-hmm. come to life, and it is hilarious, especially if you listen to it on audiobook. So nice. to tie it all together. Outstanding. Well, there you go. Is it like in animalistic Shakespearean language, or, or what is the bit. Shakespeare tie-in? Uh, well, it's it's set in Shakespearean times, and, okay. and it's but it's going through like Midsummer Night's Dream, but then it takes this fantastical kind of left turn, and 
It's it's nice. basically Midsummer Night's Dream as told by squirrels and other <laughs> woodland creatures. I think many of the Shakespeare plays would be fun to listen to as told by squirrels, right? Lots more acorns. Basically anything, yes, indeed. So just a reminder, the concert is this weekend, Friday and Saturday, 8 p.m., open to live audiences, streaming live on Saturday if you'd rather watch online. You can find more information at ToledoSymphony.com or call the box office, 419-246-8000. You can find all the uh, Toledo Symphony streaming content for online viewing. That's at stream.artstoledo.com. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barbara Kern Foundation. You can download episodes of our program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. Don't forget, you can check out all the upcoming events at the Symphony by visiting their website at toledosymphony.com and their various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find all of those concerts, as I mentioned, from the TSO online at stream.artstoledo.com. My thanks to Zach Vassar, Vanessa Gardner, Merman Sue, and Elaine Trudell. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.